there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. Are you an animal lover? What about Are you interested in marketing, advocacy, or communications, or maybe all of the above? Then this is the episode for you, because my next guest is the CEO of the largest pet sanctuary in the U.S. that is currently leading the no-kill movement today to end the euthanasia of an estimated 2,000 animals who are killed in shelters every day. But before I introduce you to Julie Castle, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an inside scoop on the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. All you have to do is go to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my double espresso drinking dog, cat, rabbit, horses, birds, and pig lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society. As employee number 17 at Best Friends, Julie worked her way up the ranks to become the organization's very first female CEO in March 2018. In between, she helped build the organization into a $130 million a year, 850 employees strong national leader in animal welfare. Julie started her tenure as CEO with a bold commitment to end the killing of dogs and cats in America's shelters in five years by 2025. Prior to her CEO role, Julie served as Best Friends Chief Development and Marketing Officer, doubling the organization's revenue and support within just four short years. Under her leadership, Best Friends earned the Harris Poll Equitrend Nonprofit Brand of the Year four times, including most recently in 2018. Named by InStyle Magazine as one of the badass 50 women changing the world in August 2018, Julie has been a speaker at TEDx in Salt Lake City, Columbia Business School, the Build Series in New York City, and she headlines the closing session of the Best Friends National Conference every year. We're going to be telling you about the conference a little bit later in this interview. Julie, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I've got my copy right here, Andrea. Really excited to be with you today and just really super grateful for the opportunity. Oh my gosh. It is my honor to get to interview you because the kind of work that you're doing is so important. And as you and I were chatting before this interview began, 80% of Americans have pets. Yeah, it's 80%. It's the fastest growing part of the travel industry, people traveling with their pets. It's one of the fastest growing retail aspects. It's, you know, it's a very, very popular cause, so to speak. It is popular to have pets in our home. Unfortunately, it's also popular for shelters that get these abused, abandoned animals 
to euthanize them. And we are going to be talking about what Best Friends is doing to try to end that awful practice. And I want you to know, Julie, that usually I wait until later in my Time for Coffee interviews to ask my guests about their major and whether they knew what they were going to do when they graduated. But as you have spent, I believe, the entirety of your professional life at Best Friends. Is that right? Mostly. Not not the entire thing, but most of it, yes. Mostly. But nevertheless, working on behalf of Best Friends' mission, I was thinking it would make sense for us to learn right at the outset how and why a double major in history and political science at Southern Utah University, who had been accepted to go to the University of Virginia Law School and thought that that's what she was going to be doing after graduation, ended up taking a low-paying job doing landscaping, caring for animals, answering the phones, and asking for donations outside of grocery stores. Yeah, it was a it was a really scary moment, I think, for my dad in particular and my family. I think they thought I was having my midlife crisis early because I had my sights set on law school for so long and got into a really great institution. And one day with some friends, I pulled into the sanctuary and I fell in love with the Red Rock Canyon here, the mission of the organization, the ethic of no kill, but also the founder's vision that actually kind of sparked the whole movement and really thinking about something in our society differently, which really, really is unusual. And so I decided at that point, I called my dad and I said, hey, I'm not going to law school. I'm going to move to Kanab, Utah and work for this animal sanctuary. And I think it took him about 10 years to get over that. (laughs) Really? Oh, my God. Well, I love the story about how you and your girlfriends, I guess, taken a post-graduation trip. Was that what it was? Or was it your spring break trip to Mexico to kind of blow off some steam? Yeah. So actually it was a post-graduation trip and we all knew that this was sort of our last hurrah to be completely irresponsible before real life began. And so we went to Mexico and decided to stay until we ran out of money. And of course we ran out of money and we had just enough for gas back and a candy bar each. The essentials. the totally. So we drove back and it was a long drive. We'd made it all the way down to Puerto Vallarta and pulled into the sanctuary and we had not showered. And so we went into the welcome center and I think one of the founders was there in the welcome center sort of managing the the shop and I think she thought for sure these are shoplifters. So She had her eagle eye on us and I started chatting with her and just made such an indelible impression on me and it was a really one of those moments in your life where you don't know that that moment is going to change your life forever. But it, man, I'll tell you, I am so happy that I made that decision. How did you manage what clearly was a pull from your heart and your gut and the more sensible side of your brain, probably represented by your your dad and maybe even your friends? And were able to block out everyone else to say, no, in fact, I'm going to stay at the Best Friends Animal Sanctuary and I'm just going to see where this goes. 
You know, it's it's one of those things where I feel like we just spent a lot of time in Mexico and we had a lot of time to read, do some reading and reflection. And obviously we had a lot of fun too, but I just finished reading the book, The Alchemist. And it was really timely because I think everyone is searching for their path. And if you're open to it and leave your heart open to it and your soul, and I don't want to sound too woo-woo here, but it really is true. I think if you listen to your soul and your heart, it'll guide you to where you're supposed to be. And this is coming from somebody who did not function that way. You know, I was really super driven in college and really, really wanted to sort of be at the top of my game. And I think it just really surprised a lot of people that I made this choice. But I think I feel like I found my path early in life, which is a huge gift, especially considering we see so many people that come here to the sanctuary, whether it be retired professionals or volunteers later in their life who aren't very happy. They're not happy with the choices that they've made up to that point. They've basically been making a living and they feel like they found their tribe. And that's when you know when they arrive and they plug in to this cause and this mission and this place. It's so cool to see them at whatever age find their path. Oh, I love that story so much, Julie. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with The Alchemist, it's a novel that was written by Paul Coelho. And in it, there is an Andalusian shepherd boy. I read this, but P.S. I just Googled it while you were talking because I didn't remember, didn't have it like right at my fingertips. So it follows the story and the journey of an Andalusian shepherd boy named Santiago. And he asks a Romani fortune teller in a nearby town about the meaning of a dream, a recurring dream he kept having. And the woman, this fortune teller, interprets the dream as a prophecy, telling the boy that he will discover a treasure at the Egyptian pyramids. So what happens is the alchemist teaches Santiago to listen to his heart. And that is clearly what happened to Julie. So over the years, you have worn many hats at Best Friends. And before we get into some of them, could you share with our young listeners, Julie, what Best Friends is? Because calling it an animal sanctuary doesn't really do it justice. Yes, it has, I think, 3,700 acres. I think that's what I found on the internet. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. Okay. And it is a super popular tourist destination in Red Rock Canyon near Kanab, Utah. And you get about 30,000 visitors a year. So could you please paint the picture of what Best Friends is? I think it's fair to say, well, first of all, just sort of thinking about a career and when you think about an organization like Best Friends, it's my belief that you can't think about the money. You can't think about, I want to get into this profession because I'm going to make a lot of money. Because I really believe if you do what you love, the money will follow. You'll be taken care of. The money will follow. And so the first thing is to really choose what makes you happy and where you're going to be able to live your life to your fullest. And so I think Best Friends, in a way, represents that for everybody who works here. 
and it represents that for all the animals in our care. And so Best Friends was founded 35 years ago by a group of friends who wanted to change the way society relates to animals. And up to that point, the movement that they were treading in was 150 years old, the animal sheltering movement. And it started in New York City. And basically, the way it started was there were a lot of animals running around the streets of New York, and the citizens were rightfully concerned about rabies. And essentially, they demanded from the city that they take care of these stray dogs. So the city placed a bounty on every single dog, a nickel each. And so bounty hunters would go out around and round up these dogs, and they put them in a metal cage and dunk them in the East River. And that was how this movement started, the sheltering movement. And the public went crazy. They were like, wait a second. They were really upset and said, that's not what we meant. And so essentially, the city started building shelters and shelters started popping up all over the country. And unfortunately, the same thing was happening. It was just happening behind closed doors until the founders of Best Friends showed up and broke ground in this remarkable place and essentially launched the no-kill movement. And so Best Friends is not just a sanctuary in this beautiful Red Rock Canyon in Southern Utah. It represents changing the world. It represents changing 150-year-old practice and actually solving it and, and connecting up the love that most Americans have for animals with the way that we publicly deal with animals. And the two don't match up right now. And I think the bottom line is a lot of people still don't know that 2,000 animals are dying every day in shelters. And in fact, by the time we finish this interview, roughly 150 animals will have been killed. And so it's definitely an urgent mission and an urgent cause. But Best Friends represents so much more than a sanctuary. It's a national movement. And the movement is to achieve no-kill in shelters across the United States in the next five years by 2025. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And we've made a ton of progress. So when I first drove into the sanctuary, 17 million animals were dying every year. And today it's about 733,000. And that's tremendous progress, but it's still 733,000 too many. Absolutely. So why are animals still being killed in shelters? From where I sit, and I am not the expert here, is it because they just can't find them homes? So if that's the case, how do you keep them from getting euthanized? It's actually kind of boils down to, in a weird way, a supply and demand issue. And so what we decided when I first put the stake in the ground to take the country no-kill by 2025 the thing that was missing was nobody really actually knew how many animals were dying. It was a great guesstimate, but nobody had the data. And you think about how important data is in today's day and age, and you recognize that this industry had never had data. And not only didn't we have any data, we didn't even know how many shelters were in this country. Like nobody knew that. And so we gathered a bunch of volunteers and we scoured the country. We went to every single county in America and rounded up the data on how many animals were dying. And then we put it into an interactive map that you can find on our website. And so you can go virtually to any community in America and click on it and learn about that local shelter and learn about their needs and what they need to 
help get to no kill. And what we discovered was crazy. Five states make up 50% of all animal deaths. And so you've got what this are they? California, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia. And so you've got those five states. And that's really our focus is to say, if we focus on these five states, a lot of it is there are just to give you an example, we have staff in a shelter right now in Southern Texas, which is the number one shelter in the country for animals dying. So they kill more animals than any shelter. And they welcomed us with open arms to help them get to no kill. And here's a community of 750,000 people that was taking in 30,000 animals a year. And they were only saving about 11% of those animals. So roughly 27, 28,000 animals were dying every year in that system. And they were amazing animals. And you look at a state like New York City or Washington State or even Salt Lake City, and they basically are looking for those animals. So a lot of it is a supply and demand thing. And there's a huge supply in a lot of these shelters. And we need to get them out into these other communities to save their lives and then help these communities build sustainable programs so that they don't end up with 30,000 animals for a community that only has 750,000 people. And just to put things into perspective, the entire state of Utah, less than 1,800 animals are dying in the entire state, 56 shelters. And there's one shelter in Texas, this one that's where 30,000 are dying. And there are a lot of shelters like that in Texas, Southern California, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. So it is really solvable. And it's exciting to see the progress that's being made. So if I understand you correctly, it's a question of moving, in this case, the animals that are in this shelter in Southern Texas to other parts of the country where people would want to adopt them. That's, in short, the most simplistic way to put it. Obviously, there's a lot of high-volume spay-neuter programs that will be running there in South Texas. We want that community to adopt pets. There's a lot of strategies and tactics involved in that. But essentially, right now, in order to kind of stop the flood of animals, we want to move them out to different parts of the country where somebody can really help save a life. Fantastic. Julie, I know you believe this is a wonderful time for young people who have a passion for animals to get involved with animal welfare. Why is that? I've been in this field for, I'm starting to feel old. <laughs> I've been in this field for a long time now. And I have seen the demographic of our employee base here, not only here at Best Friends, but in other organizations, rescue groups, shelters around the country, totally change. And it's been really, really cool to see. And what I'm seeing is a lot of young people who are raising their hand and saying, take me, I want to help. How do I employ my skills to help get this country to no kill? And so we're seeing a lot of millennials, even Gen Z generation join. And it's, I feel like it's really hyperdrive. It's been a, it's been a hyperdrive moment for our movement in that I think we have become way more 
technologically savvy and digitally native in this industry than we ever have been. And it's helped so much. And so it is a really good time to jump in and be a part of it because it's such a fantastic cause. Like I said, it's a really popular cause. Everybody, most everyone loves pets and they love animals and they want to help. The people who don't love animals are not the people we want to be around anyway. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and I know because we've already recorded the Espresso Shots interview, you also believe that there is no major that you need to have in school as a prerequisite to get into this industry. But I'm guessing just from the no kill by 2025 movement that you're leading, that you would love people who are all about organizing, communications, advocacy work, probably even marketing and advertising. Yeah, I mean, those are all really critical levers for us. And I think the community organizing piece, as we get closer to 2025 and taking the country no kill, it's going to become more challenging, just like anything, whether it be a weight loss goal you're trying to get to, the last couple of pounds are always the hardest. It's the same deal with this. And so we're going to need smarter strategies around community organizing and advocacy than we've ever had before. And we know that a lot of Americans still just don't know that just down the street, animals are dying in their local shelter. And so part of it is getting the word out and creating that public awareness and then inspiring people to get off their couch and get out and really help, whether that be volunteering or adopting or fostering a pet or even going down to the shelter and walking a dog for a couple hours a day. Getting that dog out of the shelter for that period of time is such an enrichment service for that animal. So there's just so many different ways people can plug into this movement. And it's a really, really fun time to be a part of it. Excellent. So Julie, you have worn many different hats at Best Friends and apparently knocked each one of them out of the park. For instance, you've worked as an executive director of a statewide coalition. You led Best Friends Community Programs and Services Division. You then moved into leading its marketing and communications divisions. And finally, Best Friends Fundraising, in which you grew fundraising, basically doubled it to $130 million a year. Can you share with our young listeners how you approached each role, especially the more recent ones, the marketing, communications, fundraising jobs in which you had no academic training in them and probably were learning them on the job? You know, I think the thing is really if you approach things in a way that you're always a student and that aspect of listening, like really listening and listening to your predecessors and really trying to understand what you're trying to do and hearing what the challenges were before you. And that, that to me is where the history major comes into play because I feel like you can learn so much from past mistakes so that you can avoid them in the future. That's one thing. And the second thing is like, get your network going because that is where you learn so much from your peers in the industry and learn from people who are already successful. And that's something that I've always believed in and always done. I don't care who it is. I'll call them up and say, hey, I'm Julie Castle. I live in Kanab, Utah. Can I pick your brain about you know how you did this or how you did that? And most people 
are really generous with their time. And the amount that I've learned just by reaching out and networking with other people, not just in this field, but other nonprofits has, has come to my aid a million times. Like that has helped me grow more than almost anything that I've done. And I think when you really approach things as a student, the sky's the limit. If you go in with a level of arrogance or a know-it-all attitude, man, you're always going to lose. I love that, Julie. And honestly, you demonstrated so much more courage than I had. Certainly when I started out as a journalist in the various roles that I had, I always felt like I had to fake it. You know, not that I was fooling anybody around me, right? They knew what my (laughs) resume was. And I felt that to go to people who had more experience than I did and to say, hey, could you give me some advice or could you share some insights with me about how you did X, Y, or Z would be like lifting the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. Like, oh my goodness, you know, she's really not somebody who knows what she's doing. And I think the fact that you had the poise to say, I'm just going to call up people, some of whom I may not even know, and ask them for their advice is awesome. Well, that's very generous of you. But I mean, I think it, I think more than anything, it was a survival skill (laughs) because I knew that a lot of these jobs, I didn't have any clue what I was doing, like no clue. And particularly jobs If you go into nonprofits, one of the most challenging fields is fundraising. And to stare down the barrel of knowing that you need to raise $70 million a year and you've never had experience doing that is really scary. And that's where I think there's just a huge dose of humility to say, I really don't know what I'm doing. Help me build a strategy and reaching out to other people who have been successful I think it was honestly just like, I I better get real here because if I don't, I don't want the animals to suffer or any staff that are on our payroll. So it was highly motivating for me. And it's actually an interesting experiment to job hop like that because I think it keeps you sharp and definitely not bored. (laughs) For sure. So what advice do you have for young people, especially for young women? who research has shown suffer more than men from something called the imposter syndrome, the fear of getting found out to be a fraud. I have heard that saying more in the past 18 months since I've been CEO than I've heard in my entire life. And it's fascinating to me because I almost feel like, I feel like everybody I know has gone through that. I've gone through that. And I think it's okay to let yourself go through that because in your own mind, you are entering new territory. You are sort of doing something that you personally have never done before. And I think it's a matter of just stealing yourself away from that negativity and really believing that you can do this, that all those other women before you who have achieved greatness aren't that different from you. And to me, it's a really fine line between having that breakthrough moment and just sitting back and being too afraid to step out and say, I'll do it. 
I'll take this on. It's a fascinating concept. And I think everybody goes through it. I really do. I couldn't agree more, Julie. And I hope that our young listeners will take comfort from this, that it is natural to feel that way, especially when you're in a new role and you're pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. And that doesn't mean that you can just kick back and let the chips fall where they may. It actually means you need to go into hyperdrive and seek out people who have more experience than you do. Try to get their advice. Try to read or watch YouTube videos or you know reach out to people in your field and really have that be a fire underneath you to help you conquer your fear and to help you achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve in your job. Yeah. And I think for women in particular, there's a study about how women lead and women tend to lead in a circular fashion. And what that means is that they really lean on their leadership team and those around them. And I think that for the most part, women want to help other women. And it's, I think, being vulnerable to sit down with somebody, if it's another woman or a man or, or whatever, and saying, hey, I really need some help here. And I've never done this before. Would you be willing to spend 30 minutes with me to kind of walk me through the plan that I've outlined? And I think most women will jump at that because they want to help. They want to help grow that workforce. And I think there's a certain honor in being asked your opinion too. And that is a powerful tool, actually. Absolutely. And honestly, I think it's an obligation that we all have women and men who are farther along in our careers to help out those eager young people who are just starting out, just getting going in their professional lives. And I'm also thinking about those who are in their late 20s and 30s to know that they have a network of other professionals who are more seasoned, who they can turn to as a resource. You know, Julie, I would love to get into just a little bit more granularity. In particular, in 2007, you were tapped to lead Best Friends Community Programs and Services Division, in which you re-envisioned a Best Friends-led network of shelters and rescue groups, and you re-envisioned it into a mission-oriented collaboration that was renamed the Best Friends Network. And it has 2,200 partner organizations nationwide. I know because I watched a talk that you gave recently at your alma mater at Southern Utah University. And you talked about how you were student council president at SUU and you interned on Capitol Hill for the Republican Senate Conference or the Senate Republican Conference and then for Senator Orrin Hatch while you were in college. How did those experiences help you take on that new job, if at all? You know, you have to think back to what DC was like back in that day. And it was, I'll go straight to the internships because I think they were really poignant for me. And it was a much more collaborative atmosphere. You'd oftentimes see Ted Kennedy come over to talk with Senator Hatch about a bill that they were sponsoring together. And it was very collegial. And 
it's really different now. And I think that what I learned from that experience was that collaboration, even though you disagree with people, collaboration is absolutely going to get you further than, than being combative. It just is. And even if it's incremental change, it's change in the right direction. And I think I really, I witnessed it. I saw it at the highest levels of our government and it was really powerful for me. And I think I took that back to SUU and I became student body president. That is the way I decided to lead was that collaborative notion. So the guy I beat, he was this really popular kid. I thought for sure I was going to lose. And I ended up winning by a very small margin and asked him to be my financial guy, my controller. And it was just such a, it was a bit of a head turner, I think. And I was nervous about it because we didn't fully trust each other. But I found that at the end of the day, most people are good. And most people want to see positive change. And most people want to be successful. And so I think leveraging just those aspects of human nature to get somewhere together is so, so important. And you also got to experience and experiment with different stunts to get attention because you organized a sleep out on campus to protest the lack of student housing at SUU. And it was also a way to raise awareness for your candidacy for student council. I'm guessing that having that kind of creative ability to think of how to reach your intended audience also came in handy when you got to Best Friends. Oh, totally. It really did. And I think that was, I would say one of the favorite, the best job I've had here is the marketing and PR side of things and just doing things that are out of the norm, that are a little bit crazy. So, you know, when we launched our program in Utah to take the entire state no kill, we decided to do it at the Capitol and we did a a flyover the Capitol. We had a big rally there. It was fun. It wasn't like a political angry mob. It was a party, basically. And we had a skydivers fly over and jump out in cat and dog suits. Oh, my God. It was hilarious. And we knew it would make the news. We knew that that stunt would raise awareness for our cause. And we just continued to do stuff like that all the time. And it was really... It was really fun. And just allowing yourself to sort of step outside of the traditional way of doing things and thinking differently, it's okay. And sometimes it bombs out and a lot of times it's really successful. Well, a couple of other nationally recognized model programs that you led the creation of include The Big Fix, which was a statewide and may still be a statewide mobile spay and neuter clinic for Burbia, which I love, the country's first retail-style adoption centers, and Strut Your Mutt and the Feral Fix, (laughs) which are super adoptions. You can see how when you're having fun on campus trying to raise awareness, your creative abilities and some of the things that you're doing actually have application, real life application in the working world. Yeah, I I think it's just taking an existing problem and sort of separating out the 
like known solutions for them as they sit today and setting those aside and saying, what if we totally reimagined this entirely? And that is so much fun. I really, really love taking apart a problem like that and coming up with just totally different solutions and ones that, you know, when they make people's brows furrow, like, what are you talking about? that maybe you're on to something. <laughs> so Exactly. So two final time for coffee questions. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled, Julie? It may have been one of the jobs that we've touched on already. How did you persevere? And could you share a lesson that you learned in the process? Look, I've had a lot of failures throughout my career, too many to name in this in this time, but I have had a fair number of failures. And I think every time I have failed, I look at that and think about what what is the learning from this and how do I avoid this in the future? And I think all failure is hard, but I think it's really what you learn from it that's the difference. And I would just say that probably the, the worst, the darkest moment in my career was I was diagnosed at a very young age with aggressive cancer. And I had to move to LA to be treated for it and had to undergo about two and a half, three years of cancer treatment. And I was just never imagined that I would be that person, especially at that age. And it took everything I had to put my feet on the ground in the morning and get up and move forward with a goal in mind. But the salvation for me was going through and realizing that work was sort of my distraction, that that was really what was going to lead me through this terrible process. And I think it just taught me so much about urgency and so much about the time we have in our lives. And it was a really, really important lesson for me. It was a sobering one, but I I think it just demonstrated to me that you've got one shot at this thing called life and take it and own it and make the most of it and wring out every drop you can. And so I always kind of had a sense of urgency, but after that, it went on hyperdrive for me. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, Julie. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to Southern Utah University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would listen more and listen more to my elders, listen more to the professors that were attempting to give me advice, but I kind of thought I knew it all. And I look back at some of those moments and they're gone forever and you can't get them back. And the thing is, is that everyone has something valuable to add to your life, even if it's learning that what they had to say wasn't really that valuable. (laughs) (laughs) There is a nugget of wisdom in people who have been through the wars. I feel like if I were that age again, I would be so much further ahead of where I am now because those people have experiences that you're not going to have for another 10 or 15 years. And if you're really listening and in tune with them, 
the stuff that you can glean out of them and what they have to offer is going to help you avoid so many pitfalls and really design you to be successful for the future. So that that's what I would tell myself. That's what I would do. That is great advice. And just think about it. Most of your professors are on campus because they really enjoy teaching and they want to be there. Many of them are publishing and yes, they're researching. But the fact is, especially in the undergrad level, they're there because they like young people and they're passionate about whatever it is they're teaching. And as Julie says, take advantage of that. You're building your network when you meet your professor for a cup of coffee. Oh, so true. So true. Julie, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I love your ethos about listening to your gut, listening to your heart. You are a living, breathing example of that. Thank you for all of the work that you and the Best Friends Animal Society is doing to help all of our furry friends, furry and feathered friends. Well, thank you, Andrea. You're a really remarkable woman, and it's an honor to spend time with you. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.